I took it upon me to increase my short positions, doubled them during the fall, and started making even more money on that and compensating for all the money we lost on our long positions. This really was the defining moment of my worst mistake. I wasn't open to the possibility that I didn't understand or get the full picture. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Michael Siding. Michael, are you ready to rock? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, great to be on, although I'm, I must say I'm not entirely comfortable with uh, sharing my shortcomings. Yes, well, the good news is that you've come to terms with them, hopefully. <laughs> well, let's go through a little bit about you. Mike was a hedge fund manager for 15 years from the year 2000. In 2010, Futurist, his $1.3 billion global long short equity hedge fund, received hedge Fund Reviews Award of the European Hedge Fund of the Decade. That's quite an achievement. Uh, as one of the three partners at Futurist, his responsibilities included investments in the following sectors, financials, software and IT services, plus professional support services and leisure. Before joining Futurist, he was the head IT analyst at Sweden's largest bank, covering mainly Nordic software and IT services stocks. Mike has a master's degree in financial economics from Stockholm School of Economics. He retired from Futurist in 2014, and get this, listeners, to pursue the meaning of life. Hey, all I can say, Mike, is respect. Can you take a minute and fill in a few tidbits about your life? Last five years, I've done a lot of thinking. I've listened to a lot of podcasts about personal development and uh, reading blogs on the same topic. And um, I realized one thing, and that was when I came into a little bit of wealth through the hedge fund, I started buying things like Swiss watches and, uh, and sports cars like Lamborghinis and Hublots, stuff like that. And um, for a while, I thought that this really is um, uh, the thing because, well, you, you get this sensation in your, in your stomach when, right before buying something. And, and they were pretty fun to have for, for a couple of years. But after a while, I realized when, whenever I stepped up and went from, for example, a, a Porsche to a Ferrari to a Lamborghini, faster and faster, they, uh, they lost their, um, their fascination for me. Finally, I just realized I don't really want these things. They are actually in the way. I, I got tired of getting my cars scratched and got tired of thinking about whether somebody would want to steal my watch or not. And I really didn't get any joy whatsoever from them. That's when I really started thinking about who am I really and what is it that I actually want and why. So that was really the best thing that has ever happened to me was being able to buy these things and thus realizing that they were completely uninteresting. And without making all that money early on, probably spend my whole life dreaming about material wealth. But now I don't have to consider it at all. That's interesting. And one of the fascinating things before we go on to the, the full body of the podcast is most interesting thing about all of that is what you said at the end. And that was the idea that when you got it, you realized that you wouldn't, you know, that it wasn't, wasn't as valuable to you or meaningful 
to you as you had originally thought, but it took you having to get them to figure that out. So I just had a quick question, which would be, in this case, what do you advise the people out there that are just pushing, pushing, pushing every day to try to get it when you can see from your experience that it's not as meaningful as you thought? I think it's futile to believe that you can skip that step altogether. That's uh, like super monk uh, status. So I advise people to, to pursue these things, to, uh, to work hard and, and then buy things and, and play hard, as, as the saying goes. But I also advise them to be open to the opportunity, to open, open to the idea that they will grow tired of these things. Just have my lesson in mind when buying and enjoying these things. And hopefully that will half the time it takes for them to realize the same things as it took me. So maybe it took me 10 years of uh, these ridiculous uh, buying and, and, and doing, doing stuff. And, and maybe somebody else can do it in five years if they just think about it while they're doing it. And yeah, being, being open to this maybe isn't it. That's fantastic advice. I like the concept of awareness of what we're doing, how we're feeling, what does this make us feel? I think if we have that, then yeah, hopefully we can keep ourselves focused on the things that matter. Like in the other room in my house here in Bangkok is my 80-year-old mother relaxing and watching a movie. And it makes me think that, you know, what's the value in my life all the time that I worked the most valuable thing in my life right now is making sure that my mother has comfort at the end of her life. So, and money can buy some of that comfort, but ultimately it's the personal development and emotional maturity that gives us the ability to really contribute to the world or to those around us. So I, I love, I love what, what you're learning and what you're sharing. All right, well, why don't we get into it? It's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Mike, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right. Just a, a short background of, um, of my ex experience. I inherited a stock portfolio in 1985 and then I uh, started business school in 1990 and finished in 1994. And since then, I worked for 20 years in the, in the finance industry, of which 15 as a hedge fund manager, as you, as you said earlier. And, and after that, I've, I've spent five years investing in mostly, mostly private equity. And in the capacity of a hedge fund manager with, uh, in particular, responsibility for, uh, for finance, for, for banks and insurance companies, that's, that was a pretty big sector. Well, more or less uh, my entire time at, um, at the hedge fund, finance was really in focus due to central bankers' policies with uh, zero-rate interest policy and, and things like that. What, what went on was that, in very short words, what I did was I took a short position, a huge short position in banks in the summer of 2013. And over the course of the coming six months, I lost about half of that, about $100 million, actually, actually more than $100 million. So that's just the, uh, the, the size of it. And it all started with Greece. Actually, it started with allowing countries like Greece to join the euro, the, the common European currency. And um, when German interest rates, which were extremely low, well, they were extremely low for that time. Uh, now they're low everywhere, so nobody would, would, uh, would notice or, or raise an eyebrow about uh, having interest rates in the, in the low single digits. 
but, but then it was highly unusual. Those low interest rates, they mixed with Greek spending habits. And, and you have to understand that Greece has a history of, uh, of defaulting every other decade or so. But now they got to enjoy full capacity of, uh, of the German economy and thus uh, extremely low interest rates, which, which meant that uh, the, the Greek people and the Greek government could borrow as much as they wanted at very low rates. And, uh, and this, of course, resulted in a massive debt buildup, which to me looked uh, entirely unsustainable. And in 2009, things got even worse because then suddenly, the, I think it was the new government in Greece, they revised their, um, uh, their debt GDP numbers. Um, in a way of uh, trying to come clean from, uh, from the earlier government, which is something that uh, Greece uh, has to do every once in a while since they always fudge their numbers and sometimes don't even know what the numbers are, so they just make them up. When they revised their debt-to-GDP numbers, then suddenly it, everything looked all the more unsustainable, like this country is really going down unless something happens. So that started a series of crises with, uh, with Greece in the center, but eventually all these uh, so-called pigs countries, Portugal, Ireland, Greece and Spain, were affected. And, and uh, for a while, even, uh, even France looked um, as it uh, could uh, be drawn down with, with this crisis. And if France would fall, then the, the entire European uh, project would fall. Then in 2010, 2011 and 2012, the Greek banks were bailed out uh, time after, after time. And um, private debtors, for example, they had their uh, loans slashed in half at one point. So you, you could see how this crisis just uh, rolled from one phase to another. And, and it seemed as if it was getting worse for, with every single year. And it, this is not something you could escape from. Yes. But then in 2012, uh, Mario Draghi, as the head of the European Central Bank, he said, we will actually do whatever it takes to um, uh, defend the European currency. And that means we will do exactly everything in our power and probably a little bit more to, uh, to defend Greece and, 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 and the Greek debt. Um, and, and it seemed, seemed to be working. But what happened then is that just one year later, the, the crisis came back with a vengeance. It uh, turned out that uh, the numbers, they were not getting any better. They were actually getting worse. And um, when revising the numbers again, you could see that um, uh, the Greek government had uh, lied to, uh, and to the Troika that uh, mm. were supposed to be inspecting and uh, guiding Greece through this crisis. So in the summer of 2013, then suddenly everything took a nosedive again uh, on uh, European markets and in particular for European banks. And for me, this started out as like the perfect storm for my perfect position because Futuris, our hedge fund, we were actually net long at, at this time when, when uh, the 2013 uh, downward trajectory began. Mm. But I, and in, in my sectors, in, uh, in banks, I was already uh, quite, quite a lot net short. And that me meant that during this, this like, summer, was a little bit quiet in the summer, and then suddenly everything fell, fell through, the, uh, through the floor. And uh, I was the only one making money on my positions in, in the hedge fund. And that meant that I, it was easier for me to not be paralyzed by these events. Mm. So 
I increased my short positions because I, I thought that my other two partners, they probably wouldn't want to act all that quickly since they were already wedded to their long positions. Uh, so I was profiting from this. Well, well, the entire fund is always profiting from everything right. particular fund managers do, but, but um, you can always also feel that you are responsible for a certain part. I, uh, I took it upon me to increase my short positions to, um, to uh, maybe I doubled them uh, during the fall and started making even more money on that and compensating for all the money we lost on our long positions. This really was the defining moment of my worst mistake. Because by the end of, I think it was June in 2013, then it seemed as if the European Central Bank and Mario Draghi as the head, they have, they had, have, uh, they have had uh, time to, um, to reinterpret the rule book for uh, central banking and for what type of, um, of support they could give to various governments. And, and, um, and, and, and that meant that they, um, uh, they could convince Germany that the only way out of this, uh, this problem is unity. That is that they, they re-emphasized the whole thing with uh, whatever it takes. And they did things that I never thought possible. In practice, it meant that uh, Germany should pay for whatever mistakes uh, Greece was doing. They, they managed to avert the crisis, no matter that the banks really were insolvent, and an insolvent bank shouldn't be allowed to continue, and it actually shouldn't be able to continue, uh, no matter if the liquidity is, um, is good or not for, uh, temporarily. So throughout the second half of 2013, banks just kept chugging upward and the interest rate spreads between uh, the various countries in the European Union uh, was, uh, was compressed. So Greece and Spain and Portugal and all these countries were in danger and all their banks as well. Slowly but steadily over those uh, six months, all interest rates converged at a very low level. And uh, two things saved the banks and the countries. One a reinterpretation of insolvency rules and how to um, account for, um, for various um, debt instruments on the balance sheet. So you, you were allowed to, uh, to say that these instruments, they are risk-free and, and they can be, uh, be accounted for at nominal par value mm -hmm. rather than the actual market value. And the other was that with extremely, well, if you have low enough interest rates, then, um, then you get uh, so high spreads on your business that you will in time make up for your insolvency. So looking several years uh, into the future, um, the, um, the governments and authorities, central banks, they could collude with banks to actually manufacture solvency just given enough time. And um, well, eventually I was kind of wedded to this short position because I thought that I really know how this works and I understand the banks, I understand the entire system and there is no way that they can make it. So um, more or less by the end of 2013, my, uh, my partners made me close the position. It's not that they like forced me, but um, with uh, pretty intense uh, discussions, uh, they made clear that uh, this is something that has to stop and uh, we'll, we'll have to, uh, to start over. That must have been a very interesting discussion. Had they been talking to you about it for a while and then finally 
you just said, okay, you're right. Or did they just come at some point and say, okay, we got to stop this? Uh, no, we discussed this at least a week for the entire six months. But I always had uh, some argument, some clever argument for why the situation should change uh, any minute now. And since I was the one understanding and knowing and in, in uh, being responsible for the banking sector, I could always like out-argue them because I, I, I knew so much more about all of the, the problem and the lesson that uh, I think we will uh, come to later. Yeah. I should really to have actively tried to understand what it is that I don't understand. I didn't re- really consider the possibility that there is something in the system that I don't understand. So I was trying to solve the problem within the wrong set of assumptions. That brings us into the, the idea of what you learn from this experience. And actually what you're talking about too is the idea of kind of the framework with which we operate. And sometimes things happen outside of that framework and either it's hard to understand or it's hard to accept that things would happen outside of that framework. But maybe you could summarize what it is you learned from this. The, the main point is, is what I try saying, that, that I wasn't open to the possibility that I didn't understand or get the full picture. So that is really my, um, my advice to anybody finding themselves in a, in a similar position. And that's to, um, for one, take some kind of a pause or a break. Uh, if it's in financials, then actually just, uh, just neutralize the position for a while and, and think about it because then you might get another kind of perspective on, on what you're doing. Because as long as you are in the heat of it, it's difficult to think clearly, even if you think you're thinking clearly. And the other is to realize that if things are going against you in such a big way, then there is something you're not understanding. And even if it's not on a fundamental level, it could be something completely different. It could be the flow of money, other people's perceptions. And... Um, just being open to the idea that an unsustainable situation can actually be um, prolonged for for a very long time. And I know that these are uh, very old um, lessons from uh, from the history of finance, but Mm. I had to uh, relearn them. Right. And and, and two more, maybe a little bit more detailed lessons in in this respect is that politicians, they will really do anything. It doesn't really matter what the rules are, because I knew what the rules were, but they, they were able to bend and reinterpret certain wordings and, and get all the politicians and, and the central bankers in line. I think that, that's, um, for me specifically, is a, is a very important lesson to, to not assume that the, the current rule book will be honored. Great. Maybe I can sum up some of my learnings from what you've just explained. I think the the first one is that uh, I I always try to say, try not to invest in things where you're relying on the government, when you're relying on the government to give permission to do something, or when you're relying on the government, in this case, to not bail out or to bail out. And because uh, the fact is, is that governments change and they don't have your interests at heart when it comes to investing. And, you know, one political group could be out and another one in. So we're all just a small player in the game when it comes to that. Uh, The other lesson I took, what you mentioned very uh, in passing, was the idea of neutralizing the position. And I think that that reminds me of kind of one thing that I do with with the portfolios that we have is that basically we look at them every quarter and we imagine that we've sold all of our positions and we're 100% in cash. 
And if I was yeah. running, if I was running an asset management company myself these days, I would do that and bring all of my fund managers into a room once a quarter and say, Hey, good news. I sold all of the stocks you have in your portfolio. You're hundred percent cash. Now, what do you want to add? And the reason why I would do that, it was help people to break free from, you know, the mistakes and errors and their thinkings and stuff. And then they can then rethink the ideas and then they may find that they have a lot more freedom to let go of an idea that they actually had a lot of conviction on. So I think that that's probably the two things that I take away from that. There's many others. Those are the two that I think are most valuable for the listeners. We actually started entertaining exactly that idea already back in 2002, I think. We wanted to implement two one-month hiatuses. So one, one sometime in the summer and one in, in wintertime where we actually would those out all positions. And the only reason we didn't do it is because uh, it doesn't work with clients. <laughs> it, it's a better way to do it, but, uh, but clients will think it's very weird of you to just close out the positions. Correct. And that, that's why I think in the end, what you have to do is you have to imagine and say yeah. to go through that process. Otherwise, you also have trading costs and things like that. But um, the way that I, I call I don't know what exactly I, it's called, but I usually call it zero-based thinking. And what I mean by that is, uh, Mike, I'm still, I'm still single. I'm 53, and yet people come to me and ask me about relationship advice. And I feel sorry for them for asking me, but I just always say to them, look, uh, I, I only really have one question for you about your relationship that you're in. And that question is simple and it's a yes or no answer. Knowing what you know about this man or woman that you're dating and have been dating for the last year or two, knowing what you know now, if they came into your life today, would you start a relationship with them? And if the answer is yes, then you need to double down in that relationship and really you know, invest in it. And if the answer is no, then is probably not the right person. And I think that we need to think about stocks this way at times too, to say, if I didn't own it today, would I be adding it to my positions? And if the answer is no, then it's probably a good sign that you've got to get out. Yeah, great advice. Yeah. Based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate, considering also that our listeners are all the way up from hedge fund managers like yourself down to beginner investors. I think you should avoid hiding and hoping uh, as an actual activity is to talk about the situation and explain it in detail to others. This is uh, really Richard Feynman's uh, kind of advice that if you can explain to somebody who's really not uh, in the know, how it works and, and why you have chosen this position, whether it's in, in finance or relationships or, or your work, I think you will probably find the holes in your reasoning. And, uh, and if not, hopefully the one you're explaining the whole thing to could point to something that, that they don't understand. And then when you need to, to explain that as to a child, then you'll see that there is, there's something missing here. There's something wrong. So just communicating outwardly rather than trying to by yourself reason within that little box you're already stuck in. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Well, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. 
as we wrap up, Mike, thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? Don't be afraid. Losing is the lessons that you, uh, you will benefit the most from. Love that. Don't be afraid. We have to take risks, but learn. Well, that is a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I will see you on the upside.